Well, good morning, everyone. I know I've said this to you before, but uh, I want to tell you again how grateful I am to be a part of this church family. Um, just to uh, know and see how well you care for one another. I saw, where's uh, Dexter and Hannah? Where are you? There you are. So I saw Dexter and Hannah this morning. They are visiting with us, and I thought I'd ask them as you might expect. So what brings you back to Lubbock? And they said, well, you do. This church does. We're here because we had some time off for spring break, and we thought we want to come see our church family, the people that have invested in their lives, who've made a difference in their lives, and what a great thing that they come here to be with you for spring break. That's awesome. Now, that being said, uh, I do want you to know that it's still intimidating <laughs> for me to stand up here, even after six years, and uh, speak to this group. Uh, I know uh, for a fact that you are paying very careful attention to every word I say. And I'm grateful for that. I mean, there's, there's protection that you are listening carefully in order to protect the integrity of God's word. And, and I'm grateful for that. But it is a little bit intimidating. We have such a wealth of knowledge within this body of believers. And we're so blessed in so many ways. Bible churches, by and large, are known for their love of God's Word, and that's a great thing. But as we'll see from our passage this morning, Paul is going to remind us that, that knowledge is not the only thing. In fact, sometimes we can be tempted to use our knowledge to justify our compromise. So we have to be careful to make sure that we don't let what we know become more important than who we know. We have to make sure that we don't let what we know become more important than, than who we know. Because knowledge in the absence of an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ can easily turn into to arrogance. It's when we use our knowledge to determine what's right for me instead of allowing our relationship to Help us understand what's best for us. And there's a big difference between those two. Even if it re requires that I sacrifice my own personal rights for the good of the whole, because in fact, that's the message of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave up his right to heaven's throne. To come and give his life on a cross for you and I. It, it's the model by which we are called to live. That's what love does. It, it builds up. Pride tears down. Uh, knowledge in the absence of love tries to figure out what's right for me. Knowledge that is based on love wants to know what's best for us. And I think that's the real heart behind our passage this morning. The more we look at our letter to the Corinthians, the more I'm convinced that this is an important message to them because I think Paul is confronting a prideful people in the Corinthian church. Even the things that they wrote to him about, as we've mentioned before, they weren't really questions. They were their own opinions that they had formed that they were looking for Paul to give his approval for. It was a knowledge based on pride, I believe, not love. In fact, I think they were using their knowledge to justify 
their compromise. They wanted to find a way to look good in the world instead of a way to learn how to live in a way that pleases God. Let's not forget the passage in James that tells us whoever is a friend of the world makes himself to be an enemy of God. You see, the Christian life requires a radical change. It's not about what you know. It's about who you know. It's a life that is directed by a relationship. It's a knowledge that is based on love. And Paul's going to give us a picture of what that looks like this morning. So before we look at that passage together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I just ask that you uh, guide and direct our time this morning as we look at your word. That the real heart behind Paul's intent to speak into the lives of the Corinthians would speak into our lives as well. Uh, We too can be a prideful people. We can be comfortable in the world in which we live and Sometimes we need a voice inspired by God to to wake our heart up so that our mind can see things that we may otherwise be missing. So this morning, that would be our prayer, that you would wake our heart up so our mind can see things that we might be missing and to live life according to, to what we learned this morning. That's our prayer. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, if you would just follow along with me, beginning in verse 1, where Paul says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes us arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God... He is known by him. In this passage, you can see Paul is shifting from his previous discussion on marriage and being single to a new topic. A topic of of meat being sacrificed to idols. Like the previous topic, this is an issue that has been brought forth by members of the Corinthian church. But like I said, they're really not asking him a question. They are giving an opinion, expecting his approval. And before we look at what their view is, I want us to appreciate some of the backdrop that surrounds this issue. Corinth, like most major Roman cities, was a city filled with temples. You may remember when we began our study of Corinthians, you could see them kind of dotted all over the landscape of that Corinthian city. In fact, estimates suggest that there were about 12 major temples in Corinth alone where pagan worship took place. And that worship at those temples was a social event. In fact, you could go there today and they've uncovered a, uh, a temple to Demeter. And, and you can see it. And it existed during this time that Paul wrote this letter to Corinth. And in that temple, there were over 40 rooms separated as dining rooms. 40 separate dining rooms within one temple complex. And so when you think temple worship, I want you to think dinner party. This was a social event. Meat was sacrificed and then served in the the name of that idol being worshipped and and people were invited to be a part of this. In fact, choosing not to participate would significantly isolate people 
from the very civic life of the city. In other words, their absence would make them an outcast. And so, the Corinthian Christians had justified that they could continue their involvement in these events based on their knowledge that the meat sacrificed to these pagan idols was no different than any other meat. Their knowledge of that truth, in their mind, gave them permission, gave them freedom to participate. But I believe they were only using that knowledge to justify their compromise. Look again at verse 1. Paul begins by noting, we all have knowledge. And then he goes on and says, but knowledge in the absence of love is arrogance. He says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. It's a, it's a play on words there. Literally, it says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He's making the point that, that knowledge is used often to distinguish things, to, to put them in categories. We see that in our world today. Often we'll put people in categories. Oh, you have a, a PhD. Okay, I'll put you in this category. Oh, you've been to seminary, so you, okay, have a special knowledge of the Bible. I'll put you in this category. You to a trade school, okay, there's another category. Maybe race, public school versus private school, political party. See, knowledge in that regard looks to find our differences, but love seeks to unite. Instead of drawing line, it erases them. In fact, we can see that idea all throughout Scripture. You may remember the passage written to the Galatians where Paul says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but we are all one. In Jesus Christ, the, the lines are erased. Knowledge looks for differences, but love promotes unity. You, you see the difference? And so Paul is pointing to that concept, and he goes on and, and says in verse 3, But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. More important than what you know is who knows you. Paul is pointing to a relationship. A relation, mind, mind you, that, that didn't begin with the truth that you discovered. Instead, it was based on a love that was revealed. A relationship where, where God took the initiative. He moved first. Because remember, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and dead people don't move. We were without hope unless... God moved first. But God, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Our humility before the cross is what introduces us to the love of God. It's our faith in Christ, that initiative that he took on our behalf to, to sacrifice his life for the forgiveness of our sins. It's his initiative that he took on our behalf that we then entrust ourselves to. We love only because He first loved us. It's a life-transforming relationship that should impact every aspect of how we live in this world. And so that's 
how Paul continues. Look at verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Paul kind of continues by, by playing into their argument a little bit. He says, I agree with you. There is no such thing as an idol, and there is but one God. But look again at verse 5. He kind of gives a qualifier here. He says, for if even there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords... I believe that what Paul is saying here is that your belief in one God is right and true, but it does not change the reality that there are many in this world who believe differently, who believe that there exists within the world many gods and many lords. In other words, don't let your pride make you blind to their deception. Because remember, Behind every deception is the reality of a demonic force. Behind every deception is a reality of a demonic force. It reminds me of a quote from a novel written by Joel Rosenberg when one of the characters said, the problem with you Americans is that you don't believe in evil. And very often that's true. This particular book looks back to how we proudly turned away from Hitler and just could not believe that any of those rumors were possibly true. I will never, ever forget the scene in uh, Band of Brothers where they finish the war as it's nearing its end. It's been declared over. And as they're walking through the trees, kind of making sure that all the ground is covered, they stumble upon a concentration camp. And for the first time, they see the reality of what had always existed, and I wept. And the look on their faces was so vividly portrayed with such shock and horror of, they were right. They were right. I think even today, we arrogantly classify ISIS as a JV team. <laughs> Who could possibly not be any meaningful problem in the world. But to ignore the existence of evil is to invite it to continue. I believe that's Paul's point to the Corinthians, and I think it's true for us today. Behind every deception and moral atrocity is a demonic force, and that should never, ever be taken lightly. There's a spiritual battle where evil intends to turn our hearts from the very relationship that God created us for, which is precisely why Jesus came. And so when we trust in Christ, it should dramatically impact how we live in this world. It should impact how we see this world. Paul is directing their attention from what they know to who they know. 
I want you to notice how that Old Testament confession, something that had been very true to them within their understanding of Scripture, there is but one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 is known as the Shema, probably the most quoted Old Testament verse in all of history of Israel. They knew it well. There is but one God. But notice how Paul connects that Old Testament truth to a New Testament reality. Look again at verse 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. Everybody knew that. And then he goes on to say, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. There is one God, the Father, and we exist for him. There is one God, one Lord, Jesus Christ, and we exist through him. Mankind was made uniquely in the image of God, separate and apart from all creation, to live in relationship with God, to know Him, and to be known by Him. But this would not have been possible were it not for Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus was destined for the cross before mankind was ever created. Jesus was destined for the cross before mankind was ever created. God brought us into existence with redemption in mind. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to see how Scripture speaks to this truth. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. 1 Peter's before 1 John and after Hebrews Look at this verse with me, beginning in verse 17. Notice the echo of what we've just read in our passage in Corinthians. He says, And if you address as Father the one who impartially and judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with Precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Jesus was foreknown before the world began, before all of creation, to be the hope of our salvation. We exist for God through Christ that has always been the plan. Remember the passage in Colossians. All things have been created by him and for him. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we can be saved. It's always been the plan. So it's right and true to believe in one God. But do not divorce who he is in heaven with how he revealed himself on earth. Because there's a difference in knowing about God and being known by God. 
we have peace with God only through our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. If that's true, then our life should be directed by that relationship. We should be set apart. If you look over in that 1 Peter passage, chapter 2, verse 9, very familiar. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession that you may be set apart. Why? To proclaim the majesty who have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You've been set apart. And so look at how that relates to what Paul continues to say in our passage. Turn back to Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. It says in verse 7, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We, we are neither worse if we do eat, not eat it, nor better if we do eat it. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who has knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Now, Traditionally, I think we've looked at this passage and we've understood it to communicate that, that Paul is saying, look, those who are of greater knowledge and therefore of greater conscience should, should be more sensitive to those who have less knowledge and therefore a weaker comp confidence or conscience. But I'm not so sure that that's the point. I don't believe Paul is in any way commending these prideful Corinthians who have this greater knowledge. In fact, I believe what we will see in the remaining parts of this passage is a scathing rebuke. I believe their knowledge is based on a selfish pride and it's a knowledge used to justify their compromise. They don't want to be an outcast and turn down the invitation to socialize with those of importance and success. They don't want to be set apart. They want to find a way to fit in. But I thought about this passage this week. I kept going back to what we talked about last week when Paul describes this present distress. And we talked about some of the factors that we know historically that were occurring there during this time. And I just had to ask myself, so if there is in fact a famine and a shortage of food that's going on in Corinth at this time, who in the world is throwing these extravagant dinner parties. I think it's the wealthy, the people of influence. And the Corinthians are justifying their ability to live in the world without compromise to their faith. They're seeking convenient Christianity. Something that interrupts their normal patterns of life as little as possible. At least that's the goal. And so in verse 7, he turns to a brother who he says has a weaker conscience. It's easily defiled. That conscience is kind of like a moral compass. And, and notice that they are a brother. They are a believer in Jesus Christ. But instead of leading these believers towards holiness, Paul is confronting them for leading them towards sin. And instead of being set apart, they're just filing in to fit in. 
There's no appreciable difference between the people in the church and the people in the world, and that's a problem. That's not right. And so I think in verse 11, Paul drops the hammer. Look at what he says. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, that I might not cause my brother to stumble. He's telling them, instead of focusing on others and and how you might build them up, all you're concerned about is what's right for you and it's tearing them down. Your knowledge without love is a sin against Jesus Christ. See, I don't think this is a soft little reminder of, hey, hey, guys, look, I know you know better, but, you know, we've got these weaker Christians over here and they're struggling, so, you know, just... Do the right thing. I think a statement like that only promotes their pride. I see this as a very strong rebuke. You should be ashamed. Instead of abandoning your life for the cause of Christ, you're using your knowledge to justify your compromise. Jesus gave his life for you. But you don't want to be inconvenienced by him. That's the heart of the message. And I think the message is clear. Don't try to play both sides. Don't try to keep one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Don't play both sides. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you live apart from the ways of the world. I mean, that's the message of 1 John. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it to you. We've looked at this passage before. It says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Which is why I think Paul says, if it means that I don't ever eat meat again in order to build up my brothers and sisters in Christ, then so be it. Because when I am driven by the relationship that I have through faith in Jesus Christ, then it shapes the way I see everything. And the goal of my life is not to determine what's right for me so that I can justify what I want to do. But I am driven by a relationship where my ultimate goal is to determine what's best for us so that we live in a way that honors God, fulfilling what He's called us to do as ambassadors for Christ. This morning, I think we see another example of one of those passages. At face value, we look at it and say, meat sacrifice to idols? This has no relevance to my life at all. But I wonder if maybe Paul's rebuke does. Could it be possible that we're just as guilty as the Corinthian Christians of not wanting to be inconvenienced by our faith? Are we tempted... <laughs> To play both sides. Is our goal to to try to fit in as best as possible? Or are we really talking about what it means, what it looks like to be set apart? To be a a holy nation, a, a royal priesthood? I think this passage is an important reminder to us all. 
We're not here to be friends with the world. Yes, we should live in the world, but not be of the world. And there's a distinction there. A people that is set apart. We are a people who are called to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel. If you read that passage I gave you a few weeks ago, I think a couple of weeks, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, hopefully you read that because it speaks to this. The Lord set us up. He does it all the time because it speaks to what we just talked about. Turn there if you would, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. I'll tell you what I'm talking about. Chapter 3, verse 7. It says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, from, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know Him. The power of His resurrection. The fellowship of His sufferings. Being conformed to His death. In order that I may attain the resurrection of the dead. That I may know Him. That I may be found in Him. That I may have a life transformed through Him. Do you hear the echo of that life driven and guided by a relationship with Jesus Christ? That I may know Him that I may be found in Him, that I may be transformed through Him. And that life should look radically different than the world around us. It's a life that should compel us to, to live in relationship with, any, with each other in a very different and, and noticeable way. One more passage. Turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 10. This is a passage that I want you to look at this week, okay? This is your takeaway, so write it down. Romans chapter 12, verses 10 through 21. Here's why I want you to look at this passage, because this is one of many places in Scripture that I believe gives a very good description of the people that we are called to be, the life that we are called to live when it is guided and directed by the relationship that we have with Christ. This is a life informed by the gospel. Romans chapter 12, I'll start at verse 9. It says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another when brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who bless you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't be proud in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. And he wants you to read from there. Here's the way I want you to approach this passage, okay? Don't just read it. For reading's sake, make it personal. And, and I want you to, each time you encounter one of the descriptors of what a life informed by the gospel looks like, I just want you to stop and ask yourself, do I see that in my life? For example, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, 
be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Let me just stop there. How am I doing in my care for those around me? Do I know who's hurting? Do I weep with those who weep? Do I rejoice with those who rejoice? Am I living in community with other believers? Just stop there. And, and for the rest of that day, think about that one thing. And ask yourself, am I living that out? This is a description of the people we are called to be. Does it describe me? That's the question. If you go on, it talks about hospitality. Practicing hospitality. So just stop there and ask yourself, when's the last time I invited somebody in my home? When's the last time I sat down and shared a meal with someone who made them feel special and safe just to, to be in a place where we served them a meal and enjoyed some time together. When's the last time I did that? Spend the rest of your day thinking about that question and see if that describes how you're living your life. Some of you are in a difficult place and so it'll make a lot of sense to you when you reach the place where it says that never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of men. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Are, are you doing that? Or when you're in a difficult place, are you trying to figure out how you're going to get back? How you're going to get the upper hand? What are you doing to be at peace with all men? Do you see what I'm talking about? Let's let the relationship that we have with Christ determine how we see his word and what it describes about how we should live our life through him. And this is a great passage, one of many, that you can look at and just stop on each of those places and ask yourself, does this describe me? Am I working harder <laughs> to fit in or to be set apart? I think when we look at our passage this morning, Paul has some strong words to a prideful people who are much more concerned about how they can fit in than what they're called to be as set apart from the world around them. I don't know that in our world today we're all that much different. And so let's personalize it and use those passages to guide our thoughts and inform our lives so that we are being the people God's called us to be. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, as we even think about that exercise, I want to begin by thanking you for your grace. Because there's not a person in this room that doesn't fall short somewhere down that list of attributes in more than one place. And your grace is sufficient to, to carry us through and to expose those places where we fall short, but then to build us up and be sufficient for where we need to grow and learn and develop and mature to be that person you've called us to be. Father, forgive us for the times that we spend more energy trying to fit in than we do understanding what it means to be set apart. We are just as guilty of wanting to be inconvenienced as little as possible and yet still call ourselves a Christian. Father, I pray that like Paul, we would have a radical mindset to, to go to the point where we say, if it means I don't ever meet, eat meat again, then I'll do it for the sake of the body of Jesus Christ from whom we have been saved and through whom we live and exist. May that be the heartbeat 
of those who call this their church home, and then may it go to the uttermost parts of the world. And may we not fit in, but be used by you to change the world in which we live by proclaiming the glories of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We exist for him and through him to the praise and glory of his name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day.